Hi, Angela. How are you? I'm great. Thanks, Jeffrey. How are you? Terrific. But honestly, 2020, isn't it a strange year? It's just dragged on and on and on. And all of a sudden, it's rocketing to a close. It's unrelenting. Oh, it's incredible, isn't it? The slowest year ever is now speeding up towards the end very quickly. Exactly, exactly. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Source Pod. Hi, I'm Jeffrey Smart, Director and Co-Founder of The Ligon Group. And I'm Angela Lehman, Education Analyst with The Ligon Group. So as we keep saying on this podcast, The Ligon Group are a bunch of international education nerds, really, and we exist to support our clients resolve their strategic and operational challenges in all aspects of international education. On this podcast, last time we looked at Southeast Asia and its role in rebuilding Australia's international education sector. In this episode, we're looking at that super important market, India. India is, of course, an important part of our international education past, present and future. We want to look at the opportunities presented by the Modi government's national education plan, the opportunities for all subsectors, what we know about the prospects for branch campuses opening in India, and of course, being the source pod, what COVID-19 means for international student recruitment in India. So in this episode, we're speaking to Tanya Spisbar. Tanya is a renowned and influential expert on Australia-India relations, particularly with respect to health and sustainable development. She's a career diplomat with the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and she has been so for more than a decade, and she served in the Australian High Commission in Delhi. She's notably led the health agenda, resulting in the Australian and Indian Prime Ministers exchanging an MOU for health and medicine. But the context in which we're speaking to her today is that she's currently the director for the Australia-India Institute in Delhi. India's vision for its development places education front and centre. And more than that, it recognises the, the broader social and political function of education. This is really important for us in Australia to get our heads around because India's tertiary education population is the largest in the world and it's projected to peak at 126 million in 2026. And if India does reach its target of lifting enrolment rates to 50%, that means that one in four graduates in the world will be a product of the Indian higher education system. It's the sheer scale of it. That's quite something. But before we spoke specifically about the Indian context, Tanya reflected on the importance of education in some of the bigger global issues the world is currently facing. This is what she said. I would just make the point that education is so much more than just a sector. And I think everyone that works in education realises and understands that. As we've seen threats to both democracy and diplomacy and multilateralism, I think we're reminded more and more that education is paramount. It is underwriting the future in terms of democracy, creating questioning minds that are capable of critical thinking, that can identify misinformation and cut through propaganda. We need more students with access to, to knowledge and the ability to, to test and contest the world around them to build a really strong 21st century. I think we also need to understand that if we are moving into the knowledge economy, it's only curious minds that can innovate and create and hopefully with a, with a strong sense of moral imperative as well. So I think as we move through how we develop our own policies and what we look for in internationalisation, it's hopefully with a sense of inclusivity 
and uh, not just multidisciplinarity, but multiculturalness as well. I love the way that Tanya talks about uh, the future of global relations and democracy building with curious minds and about education being central to global development and stability. Yeah, yeah, it's a really terrific point, isn't it? We really, at this point, would love to get an idea about what this new national education policy is. What does it mean for India and for India's education system? And what does it mean for Australia? We asked Tanya to explain the NEP and its rationale. So what I might do is actually start with what it means for India and then work back to why that has some interesting implications for Australia. So the new education policy was handed down on the 29th of July this year. It took about five years for the committee to work it through and publish this policy. It's been in some ways transformative and has been heralded as a needed and interesting new policy. The first in almost 30 years, it's considered a 21st century policy. It ties in with Prime Minister Modi's vision of Atmani Barbarat, which is self-reliance. So it's one of those other policies that think about India from a perspective of building up India, developing self-confidence for the individual, developing an individual that can contribute to civil society and developing a knowledge nation. So as India goes through and understands its own place in the world and wishes to move from a middle power to a major influential power or potentially even a superpower, there's a recognition that knowledge, innovation and 21st century technologies are going to be a huge driver in that. So this, as I said, is the first in 30 years that education has been revisited. It's quite ambitious. So this certainly does sound like a very ambitious plan, but we're interested to ask Tanya, where are things up to now and what will implementation look like? This is what she said. As I said, it was five years in the making itself and was introduced in the middle of this year. The good thing about the timing being end of July is that there were also a few months for Indian policymakers to think through the impact of COVID in the short to medium term as well and to be able to incorporate some of that into this policy. And so higher education, just like in Australia, is a concurrent or mixed obligation, mixed responsibility issue. And therefore, for the implementation of the policy, states will need to be able to implement that. So while the policy has been outlined um, and lauded by, you know, some policymakers as, as exciting, transformative and ambitious, the other side is the, you know, the more hard-nosed reality of implementation, states accepting, agreeing and thinking to what extent they will be implementing the policy and then also funding itself. Some states have really signalled an early an early uptake or an early interest. Assam was one of the first states in the northeast of India to look at implementing the policy more specifically and hope to have a report submitted to the government by the 31st of December on how it will intend to implement the policy. Other states like West Bengal, Kerala and Meghalaya have also moved fast, but some of the intentions of those committees will be to kind of query the policy itself. So West Bengal and particularly Tamil Nadu as well have some concerns with elements of the policy and whether or not that those elements will work for those states on the ground. Uh, so that will be something to watch over time. While none of those committees have yet submitted reports, it will take a few, a, a few months as I mentioned, some have December 31 as a target date to submit to the Government of India. 
what they're indicating, particularly UP, so Uttar Pradesh, the most populous state of India, is to try and move through the policy by identifying short-term, medium and long-term phases of what could be implemented. A medium-term goal, for example, could be transfer of credits as, as some universities close and others need to be supported and students move across. What transfer of credit systems look like will take some time for universities to organise. And long-term has been identified things like internationalisation. So there is going to be, I think, some resistance by some universities to internationalisation and what that might mean in terms of curriculum, students, but also internationalisation of faculty. Yeah, from what Tanya said, it's really quite a significant, all-encompassing plan, ambitious, as I think you said, but really complicated to implement across all of the different states of India. Lakshmi also commented on the plan's long gestation, one in the, that in some ways has been 30 years in the making. It's a plan that is designed to meet the needs of a very different India heading into the 2020s and beyond. She also reminded us that while the announcement on international branch campuses is welcome, it's still not legislated and will take some time before we will see campuses open in India. Late evening, uh, last week of July, one day, the document is tabled. And um, obviously, you know, this was India's first document after 30 odd years of not having an updated education policy. And the world has, you know, as we all know, had quite moved on into the 21st century, whilst, you know, kind of the aspirations of Indian youth changed quite significantly at the turn of the century because of cable television, because of access to information, availability of the internet at a very cheap cost and so on. You know, curiosity, primarily because, you know, this is one move that has been closely kind of monitored by the international higher education uh, sector, as we both know. About 10 years ago, some announcements were made that, you know, we will table a bill that will pass in the parliament, which will allow the entry of institutions, but that never saw the light of the day. Now, this time around, there are a lot of other structural changes that have already been made and that are going to be made which will pave an easier path for this particular provision to become a reality. So most importantly, we need to have a legislative framework that will sit, uh, you know, underpin this announcement. And that is only going to happen probably in the next two years. Once, you know, the, the UGC and AICTE are amalgamated into what they call as the Higher Education Commission of India, HECI. Once that happens, you know, that would definitely need the parliamentary approval. Once that happens, the HECI will then decide how, you know, they will allow a foreign institution to operate. So I don't see the green shoots of uh, a foreign campus in India for another five years. Uh, probably the first campus will happen in five years time. But it is, it is an important step for us. Primarily because, Jeffrey, we have also uh, stated in the document that our gross enrollment ratio, which is currently at about 26.3%, we want to push that to 50%. And we know that with brick and mortar solutions, we won't be able to teach them. So there, uh, there is also emphasis of uh, digitalization. We are kind of becoming more accepting of taking all sorts of help that we can get. Now, an interesting point about this allowing of foreign campuses in market 
is that you know it states that the top you know 100 universities and we know from very reliable sources that that number was just plucked out of thin air and put as a placeholder now we know india's needs can just not be met by the top 100 because we are such a diverse population so whether it is going to be top 100 top 200 or top top 300 and how we are going to determine you know this framework that will define who these top institutions are we are all waiting to get some clarity. Just thought it was really interesting what Lakshmi told us about this global top 100 or 200 cutoff point for branch campuses to be able to open in India when they do open. It sounds like it's not necessarily done and dusted that we should watch this space because that number, that ranking number, may change over time. Yeah, completely. I think that we can watch this space, as you say, and see how readily those top 100 institutions mm. do take up that opportunity and therefore whether or not that does end up expanding and shifting as the plan is implemented. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like plucking a number, a, a ranking number is a bit arbitrary, isn't it? Because there are so many world-class universities who aren't in the top. 100, 200, even 300 who are up for helping India meet some of the challenges outlined in the National Education Plan if they're able to establish mm. a foothold in India. So there are more than just international branch campus opportunities coming out of the National Education Plan. There are opportunities across all modes of international education, actually, from online delivery to dual degrees and for every subsector, um, from research, uh, collaboration and engagement right through to the schools sector. Tanya Spitbar sees opportunities for the delivery of traditional and non-traditional course offerings. And she also reminds us, as Lakshmi did, that there are opportunities for more than just the global top 200 universities. Here's what she told us. I made the point before about the ostensible or surface announce, announceable. So part of what India has said is that it wants to work with the global 200 universities, which is why I mentioned that six of Australia's universities are in the global top 100. So that's, I think, India's desire to work with the best of the best. However, if we think about how it will work on the ground, there are early movers like Deakin University, for example, that isn't in the Global 100, but does certainly offer specialties and excellence in categories that universities in India are really interested in. And certainly Deakin's been able to identify moving in the direction of micro-credentials, for example, really understanding how to do building blocks of skills for not necessarily a degree as such, but for training for other opportunities in employment, for example. So there are ways in which even outside the new education policy, universities can work together to come up with models that would work both for the institution on a business model perspective, but also for students wanting to acquire new skills quickly, perhaps beyond a traditional degree uh, structure. Both Tanya and Lakshmi told us about how students in India have been dealing with the COVID era switch to online learning. The experience of students has been patchy, but we get the sense that Australian universities have generally done a lot better job than, say, some of the US universities. Lakshmi told us about the challenges Indian students have faced with time zones where their US university may not necessarily be delivering asynchronous online learning, meaning for some very late nights or very early starts. Tanya outlined some of the challenges across India in relation to online education with internet availability, the digital divide, and what this might mean for a broader rollout of online education beyond just, of course, the stranded COVID-19 cohort. This is what she told us. I think that's 
beyond the scope of the NEP as such, but it is a relevant part of the bilateral relationship that Australia and India can have with each other in the education sector, certainly. And micro-credentials in particular lend themselves to, I guess, a bit more agility at the moment because many of them are generally not mobility dependent. They can be done through connectivity, through online education, through online learning, and they don't require the same level of investment either time in post moving as, a, as an actual student, moving your life to a different country, but then also the, the cost of a degree as well. Yeah, and we, we do know that in India, it's not always been easy sailing for the, the uptake and the kind of perception of, of online learning. And this year, you know, we've been talking in the, at the Ligon group about how COVID has actually pushed forward and accelerated processes that have been happening for some time. And online education is, is certainly one of these. And so we were keen to know from Tanya what the feeling is and what the reviews are of online education in India. Look, it's a really tough one. Um, I don't fully know how to answer that only because there are very mixed reviews about online education. So you might have seen earlier on in the year that there were some students that actually moved against online education because they were deeply concerned about the digital divide. So it's a very live debate in India about whether by moving, you know, the knowledge economy online, you end up as a result leaving even more students behind. You know, you already have a bigger and bigger equity gap. You have the wealth gap if this is translating into a digital divide, which then leads itself to an education divide. You know, that extraordinary demographic dividend that India speaks of uh, so much, if it's not cultivated through education for all, is going to be a problem. On the other hand, there's a lot of discussion about how online education has actually allowed for greater inclusivity and greater access where students who have not been able to access a classroom either because of COVID or other mobility reasons from their rural or regional placements away from a major metropolitan hub or a major quality university have been able to access education in a way that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to. A bit like Australia, India has also invested in what they call a national knowledge network, so an NKN as opposed to the NBN that we have. But there are also statistics on um, what that means on the ground and it, it varies widely between states in terms of access to the internet and also access to digital devices. So that varies widely between states and it also varies between rural and urban populations as well. So, for example, I can give you just some, some figures for interest. The data for Delhi, for example, which is primarily urban, 34.7% of households had access to a computer and 55.8% had access to the internet. Mm -hmm. But if you look at Assam, which was one of the early movers for NEP, as I mentioned, 3.7% of the rural population had access to a computer and only 12% to the internet compared to urban Assam that had 30% with access to a computer and 47% with access to the internet. So that's still less than half the population in that particular state. And what really surprised me is Tamil Nadu, which is meant to be a, a very erudite state, access to the internet was 25% in the urban centres. So that just shows you the difficulty of accessing online education so I, I do think, honestly, it should be seen as an important supplement. I think that it can solve many problems, but not all problems. So it shouldn't say, be seen as a panacea, if you like. But just because it's not a panacea doesn't mean it should be excluded. Let's pull it in the necessary but not sufficient basket. And I think those things are very pertinent to keep in mind because 
it does tie into the short-term issue of, of COVID. One model has been to think about Australian degrees perhaps being offered increasingly online. Mm-hmm. And while the NEP, and even irrespective of the NEP, in the last two years, India has made more domestic reforms to allow for internationalisation and, and is increasingly accepting of online education and for that to be provided by a foreign provider. Still, I think a fully online foreign degree would not necessarily be recognised by the government, but it would be recognised by industry. So those things are possible, but the two problems you then have are the perception perhaps that the quality of education is not as high for the standard being taught. What students are craving is that face-to-face relationship in the classroom, the network one can meet uh, in the classroom in terms of college peers and that lifestyle experience uh, combined with that perhaps being able to translate into employment after study. So clearly online education will be a bit more limited in being able to offer those factors. Well, Angela, I'm old enough and ugly enough to remember a time when online education was going to be delivered through study hubs in shopping centres across India. Now, the idea never really came to fruition, but I think that we are advising clients to keep a watching eye on online opportunities more broadly in India. And it sounds like there could be some new opportunities opening up out of the national education plan. Now, this, of course, wouldn't be an episode of The Source Pod if we didn't comment on how Indian students are evaluating study destinations at this time of COVID-19. Lakshmi said that the UK's move to start vaccinating citizens and the announcement of the inclusion of international students in the vaccination plan has been really well received in India. A lot of stuff that the UK is doing at the moment is being really well received in India. And she's also confirmed what we've been hearing from prospective Indian students over the course of the pandemic. In the early months of the pandemic, students and their families were really worried about COVID-19. Now they're just desperate to get on with their lives and start studying again. This is what Lakshmi told us. You know, there is a sort of a waiting mode in which, you know, those who have already registered or have started taking classes. And we see a difference between grad and undergrad population, primarily because of the runway that is available for each category. So those students who were looking for grad provisions, that is postgraduate uh, programs, they have uh, adopted a wait and watch policy, sort of, you know, deferring their uh, admissions into 2021. You know, large majority of them did that so that they could have the experience of face-to-face teaching or, you know, coming to the campus. In the case of the undergrad population, obviously, they have got a runway of three to four years ahead of them, depending on, you know, the number of years that they have to do their um, undergrad program. So the thinking is that, okay, even if I were to spend just one year studying at home online, it's okay. I will still get at least another two years or three years to go to the campus and study. So there are those differences between the levels. There are differences in terms of at the grad level, we have seen that some have decided to stick with their jobs and continue till they get to a point where things settle down and then they will pick up that project of wanting to study overseas. Uh, But I think there is a lot of pent up demand. So uh, the second half of 2021, things go well and the world manages to, you know, kind of inoculate a fair number of um, people. I think the demand will come back very strongly. So there's a 
glimmer of hope there, I think, Angela. Lakshmi says that if the world manages to get the pandemic kind of under control, then demand should draw back. But, you know, this is something we've been watching very, very closely, isn't it? We have been watching it closely. And I think, you know, it's a really positive note to end the year on. And I think we'll all be keeping a, a close eye on India going forward and particularly how it responds to COVID and how their education system responds to COVID. And Um, how this is done through the lens of the national education policy. It's going to be interesting times ahead, I think. It sure is. Well, this has been our final podcast of 2020. We want to thank all of our listeners for joining us over these first five episodes and for your suggestions about topics we could cover. We, of course, also want to thank all of our amazing guests who have been so generous with their time and insights and sharing their views about what's really happening and likely to happen in international education in Australia. We'll be taking a break from podcasting over the summer, but we'll be back in your feeds in February. We've got a number of guests lined up to join us next year, a year that will be all about recovery. And I guess we should give a big shout out to all the amazing people working in international education in 2020. You've had a tough and complex year, but you've risen to the challenge and the year's almost over. Have a great summer, everyone. You can follow The Ligon Group on LinkedIn and Twitter. Visit us at theligongroup.com. There's lots of great content there if you really want to nerd out with international (laughs) education reading over the break. Subscribe to The Source Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Ligon Group. See you, Angela. Happy holidays. Bye.